Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. And I'd like us to take a look at chapter 2. We've uh, gone through chapter 1, and now we're into chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. We looked at last time I was here, and two Sundays ago. Uh, This morning, I want to take us from verse 11 through verse 22. It's a big chunk, but it fits together, and uh, I'll try to sort of encapsulate these ideas. In verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles, non-Jews, by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Messiah. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Messiah. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them, Jew and non-Jew, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and proclaimed peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Messiah Yeshua himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In the beginning part of chapter 2, Paul talked about the human calamity, our state of affairs. He spoke about our need and the great provision the Lord has made. If you look at verses 1 to 11, you'll see that he's focusing on humanity, all human beings. He says, as for you, speaking to the whole body at large, he is saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, if we looked at verses 1 to 11, as we did two weeks ago, we focused on the fact that in these verses, the Lord, through Paul, is telling us that he has made us into a new creation. He's given us new life. And that's the focus of those 11 verses. 
We could look at those verses in another way. We could look at those verses in a chronological sort of manner. In other words, we can see what Paul says about our past, our present, and our future. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 2, the way that we were was we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. But when we get to verse 4, he now tells us what we are now. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive. And he has raised us up. And he has seated us with him in the heavenly realms. That's how we are now. In the past, we were dead in trespasses and sins. In the present, those of us who know Yeshua as Messiah, we have been raised to new life. And thus we are seated with him in the heavenly realms. With regard to the future, he says to us that we are being created to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So what is our future? Our future is that we'll be put on display for his honor and for his glory into the ages of ages. And we talked a little bit about that. So if we were to look at this one way, we can look at it chronologically. In the past, we were dead. In the present, we're made alive. In the future, we will, put on display, we will be put on display for God's glory into the ages of ages and ages to come. It suggests that what we do now is critically important for what will occur in the ages and ages to come. Because what God is doing now is working a work in you unto his glory that will shine forward for all of the ages that are yet to come. Now, if we look at verses 11 through 22, we can also look at this in a chronological sequence as well. He speaks about past, present, and future. But Paul does not focus on humanity in general, but rather he focuses on the Gentile peoples. Look what he says in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, who were Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by the circumcised, that done in the body by the hands of of men. He's speaking now not to all of humanity, but he's speaking to the Gentile world. And he's particularly speaking of those Gentiles that are in the body of Messiah located in Ephesus and in the surrounding communities to whom this letter has been addressed. Now notice what he says first of all. Look what he calls them. He makes reference to the way the Jewish people in the first century made reference to the Gentiles. He says, you who are called uncircumcised by the circumcised. He almost says it in a way that this is the way the Jewish people of the first century in arrogance look down upon the Gentile world. You guys are the uncircumcised is the way that they made reference to them. Paul also seems to focus on this because he then describes it. He says, that which is done by hands. Of course, for Paul, he's concerned in all of Scripture that circumcision in the flesh is matched by circumcision in the heart. And it is true in the book of Romans, in chapter 3, Paul will say, what advantage is there in being a Jew? What advantage is there in circumcision? And Paul says, much in every way. So Paul is not deprecating the right of circumcision, nor is he deprecating the privilege of being called among the chosen people of God, the Jewish people. But he's setting up a scenario, and he's demonstrating that by the Jewish community at large, wrongly so, they looked down upon the Gentiles and therefore spoke of them in a derogatory manner, the uncircumcised. 
circumcised. It suggests the unprivileged, those that were not given the privilege of having that right, which indicated their attachment to God's blessings and covenantal arrangements. Remember, circumcision was given to Abraham in Genesis 17 as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Later in the Mosaic law, it was reiterated as a commandment to be observed. In both instances, it suggested God's calling and hand upon the Jewish people. So to be called uncircumcised in the first century was a way of saying you're not one who knows God or has a relationship with God like we have. So Paul is speaking to this group of people. And notice what he says about them. He does say their their predicament, is that right? Their predicament, predicament is not a good one. Look, first of all, what he says. He says, remember that at that time you were separate from Messiah. I think what Paul is saying is the Messiah of Israel was not one who was promised to the Gentile peoples of the world. In other words, they were separated from the mechanism that God would use, the means he would use to unite us to himself. In other words, if we put it in historical perspective, the more distant you were from God's chosen people to whom the promise of Messiah's coming, the deliverer would come, the more distant you were, the greater your disadvantage. The Egyptians were greatly privileged. For 400 years, the Jews lived right in their land. They were greatly privileged. And yet they squandered the opportunity of learning of the true God from them. And thus they felt they fell into all kinds of idolatrous worship. More gods in Egypt than even among the Romans and Greeks combined. My point is the closer you are to God's chosen people, the better the benefit for you. The nations that were dispelled from the land of Israel, from the Jewish people during the time of Joshua, were greatly privileged if they had submitted themselves to the nation of Israel and learned of their God. But such was not the case. And thus they were separated from the Messiah. Now don't read here when he says separated from Messiah, think of Jesus, think of Yeshua. You're to think of the promise of the deliverer that would provide us with what we needed in order to be right with God. The Gentiles fell into idolatry because they did not have the revelation of the coming deliverer who would take away our sin and provide us with salvation. And thus, this was a terrible predicament that the Gentile nations found themselves in. They were separate from the Messiah of Israel, the promise of Messiah, the hope of Messiah. Not only that, but look what else Paul says. He also says they were excluded from the citizenship in Israel. Now, this is a critical problem, and it goes back to what I said earlier. They were not connected to the people to whom God made himself known, and therefore they were alienated from God. The Jewish people were very privileged. They were members of this household of belief if they so personally trusted. But God's hand was upon this people whom he chose for himself. And he says that they were excluded from this citizenship. 
He says they were foreigners to the covenants. Now, something about citizenship that's critical here. When you read of key non-Jewish people that connect themselves to the true God, you'll find them connecting themselves to the people of God as well. Consider Ruth, who is a Moabitess. But remember what she said to Naomi that sometimes gets lost. She said, where you go, I will go. And she said, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. In the Old Testament world, in order for the God of Israel to be your God, you had to be attached to God's people. Naomi could not say your God will be my God and your people will be my God. She had to say your people will be my, my people and your God will be my people, my God. But Ruth is not the only one. Consider someone like Naaman the Syrian. You remember Naaman had come into the land of Israel. He had taken a Jewish girl as a slave. And this Jewish girl had told Naaman about the prophet Elisha. Naaman had a a real problem. He was a leper. And she, though a slave, considered his goodness. Think about that. Though taken captive by him, was concerned for him. And she said to Naaman, this general of Syrian forces that attacked the land of Israel, there is a prophet in Israel who can help you. And that prophet is Elisha. Naaman sends a messenger to Elisha and tells Elisha, who tells Elisha about his master's need. And Elisha tells him, go into the Jordan River and dip seven times. When Naaman hears that, he says, I have much more beautiful, cleaner rivers in Syria than the Jordan River. And I'm going to dip seven times in that? His servant says, if Elijah had asked you to give all kinds of gold and jewels and precious stones to him for him to heal you, you would have given it. All he's telling you to do is to dip in the river. Certainly you could do that. And Naaman reconsiders. He dips seven times in the river and he's healed. When he comes out is the neat thing that happens. We would rejoice in being made whole. But the neat thing is he then tells his servants to dig up some bundles of dirt and to put it in these sacks that he then puts on his donkey or horse. And they go back to the land of Syria with it. We can imagine what he did. He had a frame built outside his home. And he took that land, that dirt from Israel, and put it in the frame. And he says, from this point on, I will no longer worship the gods of Syria, but rather will go on to the dirt from Israel to worship the true God and to give him praise. The point is he had to attach himself to the people, and we might say to the land, in order to experience the fullness of the grace and blessings of God. The Gentiles were disadvantaged because they were separate from the hope of Messiah who could redeem them from their sin. They were alienated from the citizenship of Israel. And unless they somehow identified with the people, they would not know the living God of the people. 
He further goes on to say, and they were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Now notice he says the, the definite article, the promise and singular. He doesn't say separated from the covenants, but the promise, not the the promises, but the promise. And so there's speculation what Paul may be referring to. He may be referring to the promise of the coming Messiah, which the covenant spoke of. Or he may be thinking the promise that God made to Abraham and established the Abrahamic covenant from which all other covenants descend. And we've talked about that in times past. The point is by being separated from the promise, whether it's the promise of the coming Messiah or the promise made to Abraham, it also meant they were separated from all the other covenants that God had made with Israel. So their situation gets dire by the phrase, as Paul makes reference to the Gentile peoples of the world. They were separated from Messiah. They were without citizenship in Israel. They were ones that he says were foreigners to the promise and the covenants. But it gets worse. Look what he says. They were without hope. Some have said the worst word in the English vocabulary is the word useless. But that is not true. Because even one who is useless could somehow be transformed to become useful. And something that may appear meaningless can be changed to become meaningful. But if there is no hope, all you are left with is despair. And so Paul is saying whether or not the Gentile nations understood this or not, they were in desperate straits. They were in dire straits. They were people without any hope and thus a people in despair. And if that wasn't bad enough, he says, and they were without God. So Paul talks about the Gentiles' past. He talked about humanity's past, being dead in trespasses and sins, and now he isolates the Gentile world, and he says their past without Messiah is a terrible one. But here, look what Paul then says in verse 13. But now in Messiah. If you look at chapter 2, look at verse 4. After verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, he speaks about our dire straits. Look what he says in verse 4. But God, because of his great love for us, Paul does the very same thing now with regard to the Gentiles. Now he says, but now... In Messiah, you who were once far away have been brought near through the sacrificial atoning death, the shed blood of the Messiah of Israel. So now let's take a look at this again. Look what he says in verse 12. Remember, you were separate from Messiah. But take a look at chapter 1 and look at verse 13. And you also were included in Messiah. So there's the the contrast. Isn't that kind of neat? In chapter 2, he says, you were separate from him, but earlier he told us, you are included in the Messiah. Look at verse, uh, verse 12 again. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. So things have been reversed in the present if they know Messiah. Look what he then says. You are foreigners to the covenants of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. 
This mystery is that through the good news, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Messiah Yeshua. So what he said once was, now he tells us that things have changed. And then he said, without God. Look at verse 22 of chapter 2. And in him you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So things are very, were very bleak, but now things are rather transformed because of what Messiah has done. And so if Messiah has done something great for all of humanity, he's also done something great for the Gentile peoples of the world in which they can be joined and brought together with Jews who believe in Messiah to experience the fullness of God's blessings. Now, this is critical for us as a Messianic congregation as I read these verses. Because in many Messianic congregations, you will not see or there will be permitted Gentiles to fully participate in the life of that congregation. There are some in which they will not be permitted to come up and recite the blessing over the Torah scrolls as they read from God's word. There would be some that would not be permitted to stand in leadership over those congregations. There are some in which even attending some of these messianic congregations, you would be discouraged from being a part of. And while their motive might be understandable in the sense of wanting to be a legitimate, authentic, genuine testimony of Jews that believe in Messiah, and if out of 100 people we have 10 Jewish people and 90 non-Jewish people, there might seem to be something that lacks authenticity to the Jewish community. And I understand that dilemma. But all of those things are subservient to the greater reality. And that is God has opened a way for the Gentile peoples of the world who were alienated from all of these wonderful things that they are to be joined with the Jewish people who are, have, have had the privileges that have been given to them and to share in them fully and completely and without any reservation. These words are very critical to us as Messianic Jews, but it's equally critical to the Gentile believers in our communities and churches as well. Because they need to do something that Paul mentions twice in these verses I just read. He says, remember that you once were this way. We might rather forget. But Paul says, remember this. Take a look at it in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth. Look at verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Messiah. That's why Paul in the book of Romans will say to the Gentile believers, do not become arrogant. Because many of our people have been lopped off of the place of blessing, the olive tree, and that you were grafted in. Remember this reality. Unfortunately, many of our churches have forgotten that reality. And I bet you, if I was to go through all of the churches in the valley, maybe one out of every 50 to 100 would be supporting individuals that are bringing the gospel to the Jewish people. I've spoken at many churches 
where they have never supported a ministry that focuses its attention on bringing the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They have forgotten who they were. And in forgetting who they were, they have no understanding of who they now are attached to. And thus they fail to have compassion for people who need the Messiah as much as everyone else. This is a reality that you will find if you go visit and see some of these churches. They might say the right words to you, but they oftentimes forget. It's important we remember for another reason. We need to remember once what we once were. Because when we deal with other individuals, we as believers can easily become arrogant in our own self-righteousness. And we expect people to live a certain way, to behave a certain way, to hold certain values. And we need to remember what we were like before we knew Messiah. It's one of the reasons we don't share our faith as often as we should. Because we forget exactly what and who we were before Messiah came into our lives. The greatest aid in motivating us to share our faith is not knowledge, it's remembrance. Because if those individuals who shared with us did not share with us, we wouldn't be sitting here today. But we forget those times. And Paul is very concerned that the Gentile believers, particularly here, but it really stands for all believers, that we remember what we once were. That we not become arrogant and self-righteous, but compassionate and concerned for the lost around us, as well as our fellow believers who may not as yet gotten down the road as far as we might like to see them go. We're all on a journey and in a process together. Now take a look at these verses. I just want to take a few moments because there's such rich stuff here in verses 14 through 18. This is the new thing that God is doing. In verses 1 to 11, the new thing is he's made us alive. He's given us new life. We thought we were alive. None of us thought we were dead in trespasses and sins. But once we have realized what life is all about, we now look back and say, you know, I really was dead and I didn't even know it. I was a walking corpse. I was like a zombie and didn't know exactly the full state of my affairs. Here, Paul says something else. Not only is he giving new life, but he's created something new. And this is the same term that's used for God's creation of the world. He's created a new entity. He makes reference to it by referring to this new entity as a one new man. The word man here means new entity. New reality is what he's talking about. A new thing is happening that hasn't happened before. That new thing is that Jews and Gentiles are joined together in Messiah as a one voice to the world that is alienated from God. This section focuses on alienation. Jews were alienated from Gentiles and vice versa. In Messiah, no, they are united and they become one new entity. He tries to explain to us the significance and seriousness of this. And he says that Messiah has broken down this middle wall of partition. What is he talking about? Well, if you visit Jerusalem and if you visit the Temple Mount, 
upon which the Mosque of Omar and the Alaska Mosque now stand is where the temple once stood. And the temple had a variety of courts. There was the temple proper with the holy place in which the priests alone were permitted to enter. There was the Holy of Holies where only the high priest once a year could enter. There was the court of the Israelites where the Jewish men could gather when the sacrifices were being offered. You'd walk down about 15 steps and you'd come into the court of the women where the women were permitted to worship the Lord, but no further. You went outside the eastern gate, the beautiful gate, and you'd walk down five steps. And there was a space between the temple and a wall outside the temple compound. It was a five-foot wall. From that wall, there were another 15 steps that led down. And on the wall, around the entire temple compound of five feet in height, at various intervals, there were signs that were sculpted into, carved into the rock. And it said, no Gentiles were permitted to go past this wall. Their death will be at their own hands. Archaeologists in 1871 found one of those inscriptions fully intact. 1935, another such inscription was found that was partial statement, as I just uh, mentioned. Josephus records this in great detail. That wall that separated the court of the Gentiles, 15 steps, five-foot wall, a sign that told them that if they went beyond this wall, they would die, and it would be their own fault for having gone beyond this wall. You'll remember in the book of Acts, there was a riot in the temple. When Paul had come to the temple to fulfill a vow he said he would make. When he went into the temple to make that vow, a group of Jewish men gathered around him. They knew who he was, and they accused him of bringing a Gentile with them beyond that wall. You'll remember that that Gentile was a man by the name of Trophimus. Trophimus, interestingly enough, was from Ephesus, the book to whom Paul is now writing. It must have been on Paul's mind on that particular occasion when he went into the temple, was accused of doing something he did not do, and as a result, in order to save his life, he made his appeal to Caesar, was arrested, taken to Caesarea, made his appeal to Caesar, and then found himself in Rome. It was that incident. And Paul, perhaps reflecting on that incident, said, Messiah, by virtue of his death in our behalf, has eradicated that wall that would ostracize the Gentiles from the Jews, but more importantly, that would ostracize the Gentiles from the very immediate presence of God. In fact, Matthew tells us that when Messiah died, the veil in the temple, 15 feet high, 6 inches thick, was torn from top to bottom. And what did that symbolize? That the access to God now was fully open for both Jews and Gentiles alike. What has brought about the reunification of Jews and Gentiles unto God? 
but the Messiah of Israel. And the result of the hostility being broken down between us and God means all barriers and walls and hostility that divides us from one another equally must come down. Paul in the book of Galatians says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, master nor slave. He's talking about how one stands before God. How one is declared righteous before God. How one is saved before God. And in Galatians, Paul says that for Jews and Gentiles, men and women, employers and employees in the 21st century, all are made right with God the same way, by God's grace through faith. But notice the, the comparisons or contrasts Paul uses. They are words relevant in his day as they are today. He said there are no longer any racial divides, Jews and Gentiles. All races can come before God in the same way, by his grace through faith. There's no more hostility or conflict that should be between genders. Men and women have equal access to God the same way. No longer should there be any social barriers. The poor as well as the wealthy come to God the same way. And so if there's not to be any barriers between us racially, socially, or by means of gender, man and and men and women, it is because of what Messiah has done. And therefore, this one new man has come into existence where no matter what our background, no matter what our sex, no matter what our social status in life, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And therefore, we are joined together in one new entity. Now, that doesn't mean that this new entity has no cultural manifestations. Paul's not saying all traditions are erased. He's only saying they're not important as the oneness we have in Messiah through grace, by grace, through faith. He's not saying traditions have ended. He's not saying cultural distinctions are invalid. What he's saying is that we are joined together in Messiah, and now we have a choice. Whoever we choose to worship with, and whatever cultural style we may choose to worship him with, we are free to do. But we are not free to exclude anyone from our body or to exclude anyone from the use of their gifts and abilities and talents and treasures from serving the Lord in our body or in the universal body of Messiah. What Paul is talking about is not that every individual local assembly of God is going to be made up of Jews and non-Jews. There will be many congregations where they're not going to have a single Jewish person in them. I'm sure if we went to a house church somewhere in China, there may not be a Jewish person worshiping with them. doesn't mean they're not part of the one new man. They are. I'm sure if we went into some Muslim countries, there might be some home groups of, of, of Arabs or whatever Middle Eastern background who maybe once were adherents of Islam and now embrace Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, where there are no Jews. That does not distort the one new man. 
because the one new man refers to the universal body of believers, not necessarily to any one particular local body. So we at Beth Ariel have a calling to bring the gospel to Jewish people. We choose to worship him in a Jewish cultural manner. That's why we have menorahs. That's why we have Jewish stars. That's why we sing Jewish melodies. We do this really for two reasons. One, it's, it's taste. It's what we like. And so that's what we do. Just like any church you go to, they do what they like. And they enjoy singing these songs or those songs. They enjoy them in this key or in that key. They enjoy using this language or that language. We are free to do either or. Here, we have chosen to do so with Hebrew and English. We've chosen to do so with messianic songs. We've chosen to do so with minor keyed music. Why? Because we want to connect with the Jewish community as best we can to the best of our ability. Some may differ with us and say that's not the best way to connect. You're free to your opinion. But there are others that think it is a better way. And so that is another opinion, another option, another choice. It's the choice we make here at Beth Ariel. It doesn't mean that we're not part of the one new man. I've had many churches and pastors accuse me of that very thing. You're putting people back under the law. No such thing is happening. Paul has told us that he has abolished the law. Look at verse 14. He abolished in his flesh with its commandments and regulations. So I'm not putting anyone under the law. He has abolished it. It is no longer a mechanism we must observe in order to please God. Paul tells us that. I believe it. I trust it. I do it. But that doesn't mean we cannot utilize truths of the law, revelation in the law, to better understand our faith, to better enhance our worship, and to better communicate our faith to a community we are most concerned in our congregation to see that the good news is being communicated to. And so we choose to celebrate Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah. No, another, no church does that. I don't know any churches that do that. I knew our church did back east, but there are very few. But we do that. Why? Because it's biblical and it helps us understand those portions of Scripture. Messiah has fulfilled all the festivals. It draws our attention to Messiah. It connects with our people, and therefore, we want them to hear the good news in a manner in which they'll understand it. We're not saying anyone else has to do it. I don't look down on anyone who doesn't do it. But I know what I must do, and I know what God would have Beth Ariel to do, and that's what we need to be pursuing. This is what Paul is saying. We are one new man, but it doesn't mean that there's no cultural distinctions. It doesn't mean that we can't choose to uh, manifest our faith in a given cultural manner. What it means is we treat one another with love. Because as Paul said, they'll know that you're my disciples by your love one for another. It means that when we come come together, we're equal participants in what God is doing here. And you are valuable to what the Lord would have go on here at Beth Ariel, whether you're Jewish or not. And that certainly is what Paul is saying. Now, in concluding, look at the final last verses, because this is really neat as well. Consequently, he tells us that you, he's speaking to the Gentiles particularly, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens. Now, this is what I want you to notice, three things as we conclude. You're fellow citizens with God's people. You're members of God's household. 
You're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Messiah himself as the chief cornerstone. Look at verse 21. And he is rising us up to become a holy temple in the Lord. There are three wonderful images that the Lord is, that the, Paul uses to speak about who we are universally and locally. First, he tells us we are citizens of God's kingdom. Look what he said. You're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Now, when Paul wrote this, Rome was at the height of their empire. Their geographical, uh, their, their geographical territory had expanded to its largest degree. So when Paul speaks of being citizens, that was a privilege few people in the Roman Empire possessed. Paul was one. He was born free because Tarsus happened to be a city in the Roman Empire that gave citizenship to its citizens. But there are many cities where that was not the case. But what Paul is saying is, as valuable as it was in the first century to be a citizen of Rome, as valuable as it is in the 21st century to be a citizen of the United States, it is more valuable to be a citizen of God's kingdom. And so there's a sense in which we already have entered into God's kingdom. The word kingdom is used in a variety of ways in Scripture. Certainly it speaks of the messianic age that is yet to come. No one would, dis, would dis, uh, disagree with that, or some might, I suppose, but not here. But there's another sense in which where God rules in our hearts, he is our king. And as the Lord uh, has made aware, he is the king of kings and Lord of Lords. In one sense, we are part of a kingdom, and therefore we are citizens of God's empire, if you will. But not only that, take a look at this. He also says we are members of his household. He uses the imagery also of a family. We're part of an empire, and I suppose in one sense there's that universal nature, but there's also a sense in which we are a family. There's only two ways a person can be a member of a family. You're either born into it or you're adopted into it. Otherwise, you have no family. What's interesting is the scriptures use both terms to speak of our relationship to God. Yeshua says we must be born again. We must experience a new birth. We have to be born into God's family. No one inherits it. My son, because he happened to be born into a family where his mother and father love the Lord, there's no guarantees he'd be a believer unless he himself is born into God's family. He's my son, born into my family. But he needs to be born of God in order to be in God's family. Fortunately for my son, that is true. But it necessitates a new birth. By the Spirit of God, we're made alive unto him. We're also members of God's family by adoption. Paul mentions this in the book of Romans, for example. We are adopted into God's family, and therefore, we can cry out, Abba, Father. And so the same way that human beings become families on earth is the same way we become family, part of God's family. We must be born into it. We must be adopted by him into it. And there's a third thing. We're not only part of a kingdom and we're not only part of a family, but he tells us we are part of a temple and we're being built up 
as a place in which God dwells. In one sense, Paul uses this phrase in Corinthians to speak of us as individuals. God's spirit rests in ourselves and we are tabernacles of the living God. But in 1 Corinthians 6, he speaks of it collectively. We as a congregation are the temple of God. Now, how is a temple made? It's made with stones. And look what Paul says. He says, Messiah is the chief cornerstone. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Messiah being the chief cornerstone. Unity is critical, but not at the expense of the truth of God's word. The foundation of this edifice that God is building is the apostles and prophets. That's why I do not believe there are apostles and prophets today. It's the foundation of the body of Messiah that he is building, the temple as it were. And that's why the word of God came to us through apostles and prophets. And that's why we are responsible to understand the word of God and to believe it and to do it. And therefore, unity does not come at the expense of the word of God. And therefore, we need to make sure that we are doing what God's word instructs us to do on a variety of levels and believe the things that God's word teaches us about truth. And so we're built on the apostles and prophets, but the thing linking it all together is Messiah, who's the chief cornerstone. As a cornerstone, he's a foundation that holds it all together. As a cornerstone, he lines up the stone so it all stands straight and strong and secure. He becomes that foundation for us. And when we went to Israel, my son and I, we went down into the rabbi's tunnel along the western wall. You'll see three stones there that are enormous. Archaeologists have no idea how these stones were moved. But those stones, the largest of which, and the others are comparable, one of which is 40 feet long. I had intended to march out how long 40 feet is, but I dare say it is probably from that wall to the end of the uh, building here. One stone, 40 feet long, that was 50 feet wide that was 10 feet high it is so large they're not even sure how much it weighs there are three of them almost that same size that's the largest and here's the amazing thing it's not the foundation stone there's six feet of stone under it how did they lift it up and even get it up there Messiah is like that stone Nothing can shake it. Remember what Messiah said to Peter, on this rock himself, I will build my congregation. The congregation stands on Messiah, and that's why he will never be a parenthesis here at Beth Ariel. You will never leave Beth Ariel and not know that Messiah is central to who we are. He is our Lord and Savior and King. And I've been at some congregations where I left and said, is he here at all? And if he is, why don't they mention him? And why aren't they proud to mention him? And why don't they rejoice in mentioning him? Why are we so coy in making reference to Yeshua as our Savior if he's our foundation stone upon which all of our reality stands? We cannot be ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of God unto salvation. He is the chief cornerstone. 
and all fit and are held together by him and for him. Because we are being built up as a temple for his glory, where he would dwell. Now, very last, stones are interesting things. No two are alike. If you go to the temple and you see the western wall and you see the stones and they're beautifully carved stones from over 2,000 years ago. They're all sculpted as they're carved out on the side with these indentations so so it sort of stands out in a three-dimensional relief. All of those stones are packed together without even any mortar or brick. They were carved out, and sometimes I can tell you the process, but they were carved out of the rock. They were finished in the quarries. They were numbered so that when they were brought to the site, they would be seated or fit right next to each other. And that's why they're so firm. And even earthquakes have not caused many of the walls around Jerusalem to fall. They were carved out in the quarry. In the time of Solomon, no tools were used in the building of the temple or the walls around it. They were built purely by hand as the stones from the quarry. In the quarry, they were finished with tools, but brought finish to the temple site so that the temple was built without any iron tools. And the reason was because iron was also used and bronze and other metals for war. And the temple of God was to be a place of prayer. And therefore, when Solomon had it built, no tools were used at the temple site. So here's an interesting lesson, I think. The work that God is doing in each one of us goes on, but it's a rather silent work that none of us can really peer into. The work is being done internally by the chisels and tools of the Spirit of God, but the life that is lived, is almost like a manifestation of it, but it's so silent, it's so gentle, it's just so, uh, uh, you know, ongoing, we don't see it happening. Just like they didn't see the stones being carved out, just the stones brought finished to the place. Similarly, God is doing that work quietly in our hearts. It's only later after the stones are put in a place, we look back and we say, you know, I became a pretty good looking stone after all. You know, God did a pretty good work. But along the way, he's chiseling, he's working. We're saying, man, I don't know what I'm ever going to become, if anything. But at the end of the day, we'll look and we'll see the wonderful stone that he has carved out of you. God is the architect. He fits us into the wall where he wants us to fit. We don't fit ourselves. He's the one who has given you whatever gifts, talents, and abilities he's given you, whatever experiences he has given you to honor and glorify him. Some of those experiences are extreme blessings, and some of those things are things you would not wish on another person, but they are the architectural drawing that God has drawn up for you. Your job is to fit in the wall with whatever you, you are, and with whatever experiences you carry, and with whatever needs you have, and whatever blessings you've been blessed with, to be a manifestation of the glory to God as people gaze on the stone. 
We don't fit ourselves where we want. All of us would want to be, well, wherever you'd want to be on the wall. But God puts us where he wants us to be. He carves us the way he wants us to look. And he uses the experiences he wants us to have. But not only that, he puts the stones together and we are drawn to each other. We are members of his body. We are members of his temple. We are also members of one another. We have to stop chiseling each other. We have to stop criticizing who we are. We need to start encouraging one another to be the stone that God has placed us to be and to serve where God has placed us in that wall. We need to stop telling people they should look different. And we need to start telling people God's doing a work in you. And if I need to pray for it to come to the surface, I'll do that. But you are God's workmanship for good works that he has ordained for you. Who am I to stand in judgment of God's work in you? We need to stop doing that if we expect God's blessing to rest upon us. And lastly, when we look at a wall, and if you're on the Mount of Olives and you look at the city of Jerusalem, you don't see the stones you see the wall. It's only when you get up close that you see the stones. It's when you stand back and gaze on it, you realize what a beautiful temple stands there or once stood there. What a beautiful wall has been built. We need to remember that God is making a temple out of all of us. We're all just one small part in the temple, and not the whole. None of us has all the answers. None of us has all the glory. None of us has all the abilities. We are only one stone in a huge temple that God has been building since 2000. And there are some great stones. As you think about the history of believers You can think about some people, great theologians, some great Bible teachers, some great pastors throughout the history of the world and the history of believers in Messiah. And there are some stones that may stand out a little better than the others to our frame of reference. But when we stand back, it all seems to fade away. And what do we see? We see the temple that God is building. So you are a stone in this temple. You are a stone in Beth Ariel. You may be a Jewish stone or a Gentile stone, but you are a stone here in this congregation. Without you, there's a hole in our part of the temple. And without you, that hole, or I should say the temple then, cannot function as fully as it should, or as God intends. You are critically important to the work God is doing in history, in the world, and locally here in our community. We need to remember these images that Paul is bringing to bear when he says, we are a family, 
We're part of an empire. We're part of a temple. In chapters four and five, he's gonna say we're part of Messiah's body. And in chapter six, he's gonna tell us we're part of Messiah's army. (laughs) These are all the images Paul uses to convey to us the importance and value we all play in what God is doing in the world. And when this age is over, in the ages and ages to come, he's going to put you on display. And you want to have all of the gold, silver, and precious stones with which you can be rewarded so that when you're put on display, you will reflect the glory of God to the greatest degree possible. And the way to acquire that gold, silver, and precious stones, as Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 3, is by being faithful to where God has called you, by being faithful to utilize the gifts God has entrusted to you, by being faithful in doing your part as well as my doing my part in the temple, the wall that God is building, by doing our part in the family to encourage us along in our walk of faith, to do our part in God's empire as good, faithful citizens of his. And that means loving him with all of our heart, loving our neighbor as ourself, and simply rejoicing in what he is and has made us to be. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we are grateful for your faithfulness to us. May we be as faithful as we can in response to your great love for us. We look forward to hearing those wonderful words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Lord, we, always, we can't always do the best. In fact, we never can do the best that can be done. But we can do our best as you enable us to do. We can do our best in loving one another. We could do our best in trusting one another. We could do our best in using our gifts and abilities in service, ultimately to you, but to one another. We could do our best with our financial resources to give generously for the needs that are here. We can do our best as you enable us to do. And so, Father, may we do just that. And if we do, then we know that we will hear, well done, good and faithful, trusting servant of mine. For it's in Messiah's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.